been working on a project. I won't say what it is because you'll find out soon enough. But when I work on projects, I tend to work on them by myself. I don't know if anyone else is like that. But I, I will tend to you know, work on a project that maybe I should actually invite other people to help me with, and, I, and it would be better, go faster, all of those things if I did it with someone, but I tend to do it on my own, which can be challenging. I don't always, you know, I don't always know enough to be able to explain the project to someone, so I kind of feel insecure about inviting someone else, you know, to help along with it, or, you know, I'm not always really good in person about, you know, expressing my opinions, and, and I'm, it's easy when you're up here in front of a group of people, but when it's one-on-one, -on -one, it's a little bit harder, and um, I can have a hard time saying, no, I think it should be done this way when it's a one-on-one -on -one situation. So I tend to do things by myself because I think it's easier to do it that way. But this got me thinking over this list last week, especially the last two or three days where I've been spending a lot of time on that, that why? Why do we do it that way? I know I'm not the only one, but why do we, why do we think it's easier to do things by ourselves than it is to invite someone into the project to help us do it? You know, would it wouldn't it be better if we invited somebody to join us? Usain Bolt and Johan Blake of Jamaica, who you're probably familiar with, made history when they finished first and second respectively in both the men's 100-meter and 200-meter race in the 2012 London Olympics. Despite their rivalry on the track, Bolt paid tribute to Blake as a training partner. He said, over the years, Johan has made me a better athlete. He really pushed me and kept me on my toes. It's clear that the two spurred each other on to greatness on the track. On his own, Usain Bolt was clearly a great runner. He was clearly a very talented runner. But would he have been as fast if he had trained alone, if he had been running alone? You run faster when somebody's chasing you. On his own, Johann Blake, no one may have ever heard of him if he had never been training with Usain Bolt. But when you're chasing someone, you also tend to run faster. The point is they spurred one another on. Several years ago, former American prisoners of war were interviewed to determine what methods used by the enemy had been most effective in breaking their spirit. Researchers learned that the prisoners didn't break down from physical deprivation and torture as quickly as they did from solitary confinement or from being frequently moved around and separated from friends. It was further learned that the soldiers drew their greatest strength from the close attachments they had formed to the small military units to which they belonged. The greatest torture was in isolation and the greatest strength when they were being tortured was in their belonging. I think we understand this. I think we understand that we need others to push us along. We understand the principle that, that if we're doing something with someone, we tend to go further faster. We tend to get to the destination faster if we're doing it with someone else. We also, I think, understand that isolation is a problem, that it's, that it's not good for us to be alone, and we can hear that echo all the way back to the beginning in the garden where God said that about Adam. 
We understand these things, and yet economists uh, have found a wave of recent research showing high levels of loneliness. Listen to these statistics. 46% of Americans always or sometimes feel alone or left out. That's nearly half. 54% of Americans feel that no one knows them well. And I shared some of my struggles with that last week. Nearly half of Britons consider the TV or a pet their main source of company. In Japan, more than half a million people under 40 haven't left their house or interacted with another human being in at least six months. In Canada, the share of solo households is 28% and it's 34% of, in Europe, people living by themselves. A recent Cigna survey revealed that nearly half of Americans always or sometimes feel alone or left out. We understand intellectually the need and importance of community. And yet as a society, we're becoming more and more isolated, more and more independent, and more and more self-absorbed. Why? Another question would be, why are there so many things in our society that we agree with intellectually but don't put into practice. I will save that sermon for another day. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 22 through 25 says, let us, there's gonna be three let us statements in this passage. This is, these are three statements that essentially the author has been arguing for nine and a half chapters all the way up until this point. And, and then he makes his concluding statement in verse 19 through 21, summarizing all of that information. And then he gives us these three let us statements as a result of all of the information we've been studying for the last eight weeks. So all of that information has been building up to these three statements. Let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. So there's the first one. Let us draw near to God. The second one, verse 23, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess for he who promised is faithful. There's the second one. Let us hold unswervingly. We talked in the devotional and on the podcast this week about how holding unswervingly is holding fast to a heading. That, that, we, that we have the heading set in our hope of Jesus Christ where our hope is anchored and we hold fast to that heading. We are not going to let our direction shift from that heading. That's what it means to hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. And the third one is let us consider how we may spur one another on to love and good deeds not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. Why are there so many things in our society that we agree with intellectually but we don't practice? Let us draw near to God. We, we would agree with that. We want to draw near to God, but do we practice it? Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. Our heading set dead on Jesus Christ. We agree with that. that. That makes a lot of sense. We should live that way, but do we practice that? Let us consider 
how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. We would agree with that, but do we practice it? The author of Hebrews was writing to a group of people who were starting to be oppressed and eventually would be persecuted for their faith, and they were starting to stop meeting together and go back to Judaism. They were enduring oppression and persecution that was causing them to stop meeting together. What are we enduring that's causing us to stop meeting together? I've shared this statistic many times, but here it is again. 1.6 is the average number of times people attend church. I know there are a lot of exceptions in this room to that statistic. But 1.6 is the national average, 19.2 times per year. If the average person sleeps seven hours a night, that means the average person sitting in this room has 6,188 waking hours per year. Do you know what percentage of our waking hours we spend at church with the attendance rate of 1.6 times per month? 0.063%. That means we spend 99.37% of our time in pursuit of our own interests. Even if we're attending every week, the statistic is still pretty small. Two hours a week. 1 Corinthians 6.17, Paul said, Come out from them and be separate, says the Lord. He's quoting from an Old Testament passage. There's not a whole lot of separateness to us as a church anymore. If I can, I would like to uh, be honest for and vulnerable and transparent for a minute. What I'm about to say um, could really backfire on me. Uh, but I'm going to trust that you're not going to use all of this information against me. I'm going to trust that uh, your, your intentions are we want to be the church as God has given us the church to be. And I just can't settle for us not moving in that direction. There are so many days and nights when I ask myself, what is it going to take to get the people of 6-8 to really care? And I know that statement might hurt some. But just hang with me. Let, me. let me work it out. I mean, to really care. I mean, I would say we probably care, but to really care to really care about our relationship with God. To really care about our church. This isn't my church, this is our church that God has entrusted us to under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. To care about one another, to really, really actually deeply care about one another in this family. To care about the lost, to care about people who need our help, to really care. God, what is it going to take 
to get people to really care. And I know, I know people care about our church, but, but it takes so much effort on an ongoing basis just to try to get people to consistently be here on Sundays. And the amount of energy it takes us to, to get us as a church body to consider doing something that's not on a Sunday morning is enormous, and we usually fail most of the time. If there's any other event, any other time during the week that we're trying to do as a church, it usually is really poorly attended. And even though we've often talked about really prioritizing our church community and the functions that we put together as a church community and being together and committed to one another as a body, not a whole lot has changed. We still have a lot of the same struggles as we've always had. Do you want to know the, the real reason I can't sleep on Saturday nights anymore? Got about two hours of sleep last night, which is more than I got this last Saturday night. The reason I don't sleep on Saturday nights is because of the pressure and burden of our church. I know I... I, I did not understand this. I was a pastor, but I was not a lead pastor until being here, and I thought I understood, but there's no way for you to understand the, the pressure and burden of being a senior pastor unless you've been one for uh, a reasonable amount of time. But there's so, much, there's so much pressure in the way we do church right now, and I just, I just want to be honest. In, in the way our society does church, there's so much pressure on me to have a peak performance every Sunday. Because in the current church culture, all it takes is one off Sunday, like today, for someone to decide, I'm gone. Ah, I didn't really care for that. I'm going to go find somewhere else. And when you're a small church like us, you know, you, we rely on every single person here, losing one person is crucial. The weight that comes with being a senior pastor, I mean, it's, it's unreal. It's unlike anything I've ever experienced. And that's what keeps me awake on Saturday nights. It's, it's not like owning a business, which we've done. We owned a photography business for a long time. And people say that that's one of the most stressful jobs you can have is owning your own business. And th th this is nothing. I mean, that was nothing in comparison to this. And I... I I, 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 and I, I don't want you to feel like I'm dumping everything on you. I just, I want you to know, I want you to know how, where I'm coming from. There's just, the way church functions now, everything hinges on this one service. And, and it hinges on our ability to put together some kind of show, which we don't do, but to put together some kind of show that's going to stick in your mind long enough that you want to come back the next week. And we tried that approach for a long time where we wanted to do something that, that you, people would talk about. And it just doesn't work. And it's too much pressure. And as hard as we've been trying to change the way we do church, we're still under that same structure. 
And what makes it really difficult for me personally and for my wife and our family is that we care so deeply about this place. Like, we would, we would literally die for this church. I don't know if you know that, but we would literally die for this. And I feel like much of my time here is, is like Paul, pouring out my life as a drink offering in the service of God and his kingdom at 6-8 Church. And when your family has to consistently make sacrifices on account of my role here, to see things be taken for granted, minimized, and weaponized against you, it's the most difficult thing. One study I heard of long ago ranked being a pastor as the third most stressful job in the country behind being the president and an air traffic controller. And while I've been out in the shop working on that project by myself, I've been constantly praying and asking God, how do I, how do I lead our church how do I help the people of 6-8 Church really hunger and thirst for righteousness? I, how, do I, how do I lead? How do I preach? How do I pray? How do I do what you've given me to do here so that the people of 6-8 have an unquenchable thirst and an unrestrained hunger for God in their lives? God, help me know how to do that. How, how God, how do I help people care more deeply about our church? Because it's so hard to care so deeply about something, to have it constantly taken for granted. I don't know why God made me this way. I, I mean, I know a lot of other pastors you know, have a little bit of an easier time, it seems, you know, with, with some of the ups and downs and the pains and frustrations of the church. I think it's become part of that stuff I said earlier about being wired with belief. This is the definition of belief according to StrengthsFinder if it helps you understand me. Someone with the strengths finder theme of belief is one who has core values that are present and enduring. These beliefs or values guide decisions and influence relationships and work. Those core values provide a benchmark for what is true. The strength of belief indicates that a person has deeply held beliefs that are true, unchanging, dependable, and structured and interconnected. which I think would be typically how we want to live. But it's not always easy when, when you think differently than everyone else, or a lot of people anyway. Now, if I asked anyone in this room if they care about 6A Church, probably every single person would say yes. And, and I believe, I believe that we care. But maybe, maybe we're kind of falling prey to what we were talking about earlier, that there are so many things in our society that we agree with intellectually, but we don't put into practice. I believe that we care when we say we care. I do not question that. But how do we really know when someone cares deeply about something? I mean, in our church, average attendance isn't much better than the national average. It's two and a half times per month. We're a little bit better, but not a lot. And I know that the people of 6-8 Church care about how they think about this church, 
But we can, we can evaluate what we really care about, I think, by three things. And I thought it'd be fun to just bring all of the really hard, heavy topics into one sermon. Get it out of the way. We can tell what we really care about by how we spend our time, our talent, and our treasure. So not only are we talking about church attendance and caring deeply, but we're going to talk about money, we're going to talk about how we spend our time. But we know what we care about by how we spend our time. We know what we care about by how we spend our money. We know what we care about by how we spend our talent, how we use our talent. Right? I mean, that's just common sense. You've heard that before. If you, if you want to know what someone really cares about, just look at their checkbook and their planning book, their date book, and you'll see what somebody really cares about, what's really important to someone. And if we were to look at our lives based on the way we spend our time, our talent, and treasure, what do we really care about? I mean, I can see, and this is a good thing, I can see that we, we care for our families. We care deeply for our families. And I can see that in the way that we spend time with our families. I can see it in the way that we spend money on our families. I can see it in the sacrifices that we make for our families. We, we care for our families. I can see the investments that we make and the ways that we develop them and, and all of the things we work so hard to give our families the life that we think they deserve. I can see, we can see how we care for ourselves and the things that we do to provide for ourselves, right? This is visible to us. We can see it in, in what we do for ourselves and the, and the gifts we give to ourselves and the subscriptions we give to ourselves and all of the things we do for ourselves. But just being honest, if I ask for some of us in this room to read our Bibles daily, I start to get resistance. And this stuff that we're working on here in this packet, which I don't do perfectly, just so you know, I don't hit every day perfectly, I had several off days this week. But the stuff that, you, that we do in the packet every day, if we, I mean, I know some people spend more time than this, but 15, 20 minutes, you can do it. Some people refuse to do it in 15 or 20 minutes, but that's different. But when I, when I ask for 15 or 20 minutes of our time throughout the day to spend time with God, something, by the way, that I get nothing out of, I get resistance. And the response I get from some people when I ask for you to spend 15 or 20 minutes a day doing devotional work like this, it's almost as though I was asking you to sacrifice a child or a pet. And these are all things I want you to do for you, which is what makes it so confounding so much of the time.
Oh, I appreciate that. Yeah, that's, and, and I, know we're, I know we're moving in the right direction. So again, don't hear what I'm saying as, as a lashing. But the, and I, I, it's probably unreasonable for me to ask people to care as much about this place as I do. Um, but that's kind of what I want. <laughs> but here's, here's your first warning. I'm going to ask us at the end of the service to, uh, to do something. It's going to feel extreme. But if you really think about it, it's really not that extreme. But there's your first warning. Be prepared for my suggestion. But it, like, and I know, I know we're moving in the right direction, so th- thank you, Elaine, for reminding me of that. But you know, we, we, need to be, you know, we, we need to be, as a church, moving in a direction where we're spending more and more time together according to the passage that we read today. All the more, as you see the day approaching, that was written 1,949 years ago. That, that day is getting a lot closer now than it was back then. And, and I think we should be spending more time together, but when we start to suggest that we need to get together outside of a Sunday morning, there's sometimes resistance, but most of the time it just, it just doesn't happen. Like, I don't know if you know how happy it would make me if we could just all show up together at the same time on the same Sunday. That would be a really positive thing for us as a church. But then to go further, you know, one more night of the week, I know it's going to be a struggle. And oftentimes when people ask about doing an event during the week, I say, it doesn't work. You can try it, you're welcome to try it, but be prepared to fail. Because people don't come out during the week. And I know we've got a lot going on. I know a lot of times we've got kids' practices, sports practices, a lot of us work schedules, and and a lot of that's unchangeable, and and I understand that. But... But aren't there times, though, when it's not those things and we still would just rather stay at home, if we're being honest? If I'm being honest, I feel that way a lot of the time. I like sitting on my couch and watching TV, just like anyone else in this room. A lot of time, I don't know that when we say we can't do something, that the reason is because we actually have another commitment. I think there are plenty of times when we refuse to do something simply because we want the evening to ourselves. But you know, even though I don't always feel like coming to an event, I always, every single time, even, even if it's at a time that I really don't want to be here, I always leave the event saying, I'm really glad I was there. I, I don't know that I've ever left an event that we've done here at 6A Church not feeling that way. I might have not felt that way coming, but I always felt different leaving. I'm really glad I was there. I know that you know we have an enemy, and we've talked a lot about the enemy. And the enemy, I think, is succeeding at getting us isolated, getting us addicted to our smartphones so that we can, can you know, keep going back into our shell more and more and be isolated from the rest of the world. His tactic is working at getting us isolated, but it's not always just the enemy's fault. A lot of time, the enemy is ourselves. Sometimes the enemy is our own selfishness. Dostoevsky said this. He said, the world says, you have needs. Satisfy them. You have as much right as the rich and the mighty. Don't hesitate to satisfy your needs. Indeed, expand your needs and demand more. 
This is the worldly doctrine of today. And they believe that this is freedom. The result for the rich is isolation and suicide. For the poor, envy and murder. We've really bought this lie that we, you know, we have needs and we deserve to, to have them be satisfied and we have as much right as anyone else in the world to go and get our needs met. And when church meets one of those needs, we go. But if it's not going to meet it, we don't. I think it's more of our self-absorption that gets us at that 1.6 average than it is the enemy. Sure, the enemy's tactics are working, but there are things we like doing, and we do them. I think the reason we struggle to be persistently faithful to our church community, the reason we won't make it a priority and give it precedence over other events in our lives which is what we've asked several times to give, to start giving church the priority that God wants you to give church in your life. The reason we don't want to do that, if we're being honest, is because we want the other things more. We want to do those other things. Like we've talked about, those are, those are enjoyable things. We like doing them. And so, Sunday mornings, Midweek events, men's and women's ministries, hopefully someday small groups and house churches and house communities like we'd really like to see happen. Those things get put in the mix of other things that we would like to do more. Hope you can see how deeply Becky and I care for this church. We've made, it may not seem like it, may, and I know there may be some who think differently, but we've made a lot of sacrifices here and continue to make them because we believe in what God is doing in this church. And it's a burden that we, we carry for this church. But we so badly, so, so deeply want you to have the kind of relationship with God that you were designed for. And so much of the time we've settled for so much less because we've settled for the religion of American Christianity instead of God's real relational church. And this church isn't just one of the ways that we spend our time. That's how we think about it, I think, now, based on my evaluation from how things work. We think it's just one of the ways we can choose to spend our time, and there are other things we can choose to spend our time on. But biblically speaking, the church is the visible, tangible expression of the most important thing on this planet. The church is the visible, tangible expression of Jesus Christ and his presence on the earth. That makes it the most important thing on the planet. So this is really the most important thing. God has put you here. God has put me here. And right now you might be thinking, why? Why, God, do you have me in this place? But God has put us all here for a reason. He's brought us all together to be the church here for a reason. Because he has a much bigger dream 
for the lost and dying in our society. But you might be saying, oh, come on. It's not, it's, you mean it's the most important thing to you. But maybe it's not the most important thing to me. And that is exactly my point. If you read the New Testament, there was nothing lackadaisical, ambivalent, or half-hearted about the early church. It was sold out, die-hard, 100% commitment to the gospel and what Jesus has given us. And if the church got that way, if the church got lackadaisical, we started to hear confrontations like we read about in Hebrews today. Let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. In Revelation chapter 3, we see another, another statement about the church. It says, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I am rich. I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. The church is the most important thing on the planet Earth. It is the vehicle through which God wants to reach every lost person to come to him. That means we should be one another God's highest priority for our lives. For you to love him and that we love one another should be the highest priority of our lives. God said, Jesus said, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. He himself said, love one another as I have loved you, so also you should love one another. He said that the night before he was going to be crucified. Loving God and loving one another should be the most important thing, the highest priority in our entire lives. So then what is love? Well, love isn't desire like we think of it in our time, where we desire someone or really we kind of lust after someone. That's what we think love is. That's not what love is. Although I would have to say that it would be a big step forward for many of us if we actually desired more of God in our life. But agape love is different. It's not a feeling. Agape love is an act of the will. We can see this by the way God has loved us. In 1 John, uh, it says that, that uh, this is what love is, or that God is love. And if God is love, then we can look at the way God expressed his love to know how love is expressed. Right? Agape love isn't, isn't a feeling that's based on how things are going at the moment and a decision I make on, okay, well, things are going well, so I love this person now, but when things go different, I'm not going to continue to love this person. That's not what love is. Love is an act of the will, which is what God has done for us. It's unconditional. Love, agape love, is not based on the recipient 
Agape love is the decision of the giver. So God, when he has loved us with his agape, unconditional love, was a decision he made about us, even though we were rebelling against him in so many ways. God is love, and his love is shown by what it does. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4 and 5. God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Notice what we, the recipients, were doing. We were dead in our trespasses, and that's when he gave us the love. Because of his great love, not because of us. By grace, we have been saved. Romans chapter 5, verse 8. God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We tend to love things when they're going well, and when they stop going well, we kind of pull our love back. But that's not how God loved us. And we're supposed to love God with this same unconditional love expressed in our actions. We are supposed to love others with this same unconditional love expressed in action, whether friend or foe. Whether we like the person or we can't stand the person, we are supposed to, with our actions, express this same love to others that has been poured out in our hearts. You can look up John 13, 34 and Matthew 5, 44 if you'd like more on that. But if we were to stop and grade the love, give an actual grade to the love we're giving to God based on our actions toward the church, what would the grade be? If you were to give your love that you're giving to God based on your expression of love to others in the body of Christ, what would it be? I have some room for improvement on that. This kind of love does not come natural to us. The only way to give this kind of love is to receive it. Romans 5.5, 5, hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So the love that we need to give is the love that we've received through the Holy Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is love, Galatians 5.22, 1 John 3.16. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. So then, what do you think is the primary way we give and receive God's love? To others. When we love others. Earlier this week, one of the devotionals was titled, My Actions Disclose My Values. Some of you have probably heard Alex say, My life reveals my beliefs. And I posted a quote from Dr. Gray. said, Every external reaction is a reflection of your internal world. That the way we live our life actually tells us what we believe truly in our lives. At some point, as a church and as a, as a society of believers here at 6-8 Church, we have to start confronting the gap between what we say we value and what our actions say we value. The gap between what we say we value and what our actions say we value. There may always be a gap, but we have to ask, is it growing or shrinking? 
Acts chapter 2 has always been a dream for us as a church. Verse 42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, devoted themselves to fellowship, devoted themselves to the breaking of bread, and devoted themselves to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give it to anyone who had need. They were devoted to these things. How would you describe your devotion? Could your approach to teaching and fellowship, communion with the body of Christ and prayer be described as devotion? Could your relationship with God expressed through your relationship with your brothers and sisters in Christ really be the most important thing in your life? I mean, how much do you really care about God's church at 6-8? And how big is the gap between God's love for you and your expression of love for him by loving one another? How big is the gap between God's love that he has poured out on you and your expression of that love to your brothers and sisters in Christ and to your enemies and to others outside of here? And if you would say to yourself, well, I don't know, and to be honest, I don't really care all that much. Why? Why don't you care? I think some of us, it comes back to the underlying belief that we think church is where we come to get something. We have turned church into a commodity that we consume, and we come and we get what we want, and then we leave. Simon Sinek says, givers advance the world. Takers advance themselves and hold the world back. We understand in our minds, ideologically speaking, that we aren't better off on our own. We understand in our minds that we need others to be pushing us. We understand that we weren't built by God for isolation. We understand ideologically in our minds that life in Christ is not about consumption, it's about sacrifice. Daniel Goleman in a book called Social Intelligence says, self-absorption in all its forms kills empathy, let alone compassion. When we focus on ourselves, our world contracts as our problems and preoccupations loom large. But when we focus on others, our world expands. This is a secular scientist, by the way. Our own problems drift to the periphery of the mind and so seem smaller and we increase our capacity for connection or compassionate action. Maybe, this is a hard statement, maybe the reason we don't have compassion or empathy for others in the world around us is because we're so self-absorbed. Maybe our self-absorption is the reason we're getting more and more isolated. Maybe our self-absorption is the reason our relationships don't endure. We've replaced our devotion with self-absorption. We've replaced sacrifice with consumption. God has given me a dream for our church. No, it's not to be a mega church. It used to be the dream. That's not the dream. 
This dream, I think, is to change one of the biggest problems in our society, one of the biggest injustices around. Not the biggest injustice, because I will always say that right now in our society, abortion is the greatest injustice, the greatest tragedy of our time. It's not a political issue. It's a moral issue. And it's something that I think we've been too silent on as the church. That doesn't mean if you or someone you know has had an abortion, we will ever be condemning of that person. There's always love and grace. And we would be the first to wrap our arms around anyone who's made that decision and at the same time the first to intervene as best we can. But there are other injustices around and a dream I think God is giving me seems to be a dream God is giving me to address those, but as it is, I don't know if we can handle the dream. I think the call that God would put on us as a church to answer this dream might be too much. Our connection to one another, our, our devotion to community may not be able to handle the requirements of the dream. Because I think God has put a big call on us as a church there's a local call that God is giving us, a, a, a justice call that we're gonna start figuring out some way to start meeting. But there's a bigger call, I think, too, that God is putting on us as a church. And this you might even laugh at when you hear me say it. But I believe in a David and Goliath world. And if your faith is in God, then it doesn't matter how big your enemy is. And don't hear me say the church at large is an enemy. That is not my point at all. But I think God has put a call on us as a church to be a light and a guide for other churches out of consumerism and back into God's original design. There's already a big movement in this direction, and I think God wants us to be a part of that story. Yeah, we're small. Yeah, we got a lot to learn. But I fully believe this is something God wants for us. So, what am I asking? I'm not asking anymore. I'm begging. I'm begging for us as a church to care so deeply about God's most precious creation. That's what this is. And, and I, I just feel like the way we treat it in our time and in our society is just like, we don't really care about it. We don't really have God's picture for it, but this is his most precious creation. He gave the life of his son for this thing. Is there any way to care a little more deeply about his church? Is there any way for us, and I'm begging us to, to stop treating the church like a commodity where we go to church to get something out of the church, but that instead of treating it like that, we want to treat it like this, this eternal community of believers who are tied together and united under the blood of Jesus Christ. Is there any way for us to care deeply about the church like that? So I'm begging us to start changing our thinking We've talked about tithing, and we're above the bar on that. Get to that in just a second. We've talked about tithing from our income, but we haven't talked much about tithing of our time and talent to the church. Our waking hours, if everyone sleeps seven hours a night, are 119 hours a week. We're awake 119 hours over the course of the week. 
That means 10% of that, a tithe of that, would be 11.9 hours. <laughs> I can feel the tension already. What would, how would our life look differently if we started spending 11.9 hours per week gathered together in various forms as the church? If we started spending a minimum of 10% of our time together as the church, carrying the load of one another in the church, carrying the load of the organization of the church, taking the initiative to do what needs to be done and not have to be begged to do something or anything at all. Even if we just did half of that amount at this, at this moment in time, it would radically alter the makeup of our church. We have roughly 60 adults that, that are they call 6A church home. And that would be 714 hours a week spent as a church together or serving the body in some way, shape, or form. That would radically alter our church. But you might say, I just don't have that kind of time. I, it's just not possible for me. Yeah, I know. We might have to start saying no to other things instead of always saying no to the church. Tithing 10% of our talent for the church. I can't go through the list of all the talents in this room, but Alex Rice is a good example of this. Recently, if you haven't gone out back and looked, you can go out back and look. The big hole is filled in. Alex and his connection with Legacy 6, you know, they worked it out so that when they were taking dirt from the Eisenhower project, they could come back here and fill in the big hole, and they also donated the hydro seed and the equipment and the hours and everything to get it done. That is a great example of using your talent for the church. What would it look like if we all used 10% of our talent for the church, and not just for the organization, but for the community of the church? And then, of course, 10% of your income. We have a high percentage. I think it's in the 60%, low 60% range of people who already give 10% to the church, but there are some who don't give. And I'm not going to give any kind of pressure or any kind of awkward call to start giving, but what would it look like if we all gave 10%? Some would say, oh, I don't have anything to give. Well, if you literally have nothing to give, then you have time and you have talent that you can give. Maybe you can give more time. Maybe you can give more talent. My plea this morning is to care. Not about me, not about my family, not to respond out of guilt to my plea this morning. Please don't give me a gift card to a coffee shop. If you do that, I might just throw it back in your face but to respond by caring deeply about our church, to let God search your heart and get into the deep, icky parts of our heart that are keeping us from caring deeply and make his body, his bride, a top priority in our lives. To care so deeply about this church and what he's called us to that we actually take the mission and vision that God has put on us personally. Not just that thing my pastor asks me to do, but that thing that keeps me up at night. Would you care so deeply with me that you stay awake on Saturday nights? 
I mean, would you just care so deeply about, about this thing that God has entrusted to us that, that, that it's just, on Saturday nights, you just can't get some of the thoughts out of your mind? Do you know how comforting that would be to, to me on Saturday nights to know that God's keeping some of you up too? Um, like 10% of your night, that'd be fine. And maybe we just all start showing up here and praying through the night on Saturday night and see what God does. But if you, if you see something that needs to be done, do it. You have my permission not to ask for permission. If a light bulb needs to re be replaced, replace it. If the trash needs to be emptied, emptied it. If something needs to be fixed, fixed it. If, if someone needs help in our church, do whatever you can do to help. Don't just call us to do the work. If someone is struggling, do what you can to rally support for that person that is struggling. Somehow and some way we have to get back to that idea of devotion that they had in the early church where they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship. They devoted themselves to the breaking of bread and to prayer. And the, the plea of my heart that I went to bed and I prayed most of the night talking with God about is, God, I want to see you show up in our church with presence and power in such a way that they had in the new church, in the New Testament church, where many wonders and signs were performed in the presence of believers. Yeah, I just, I just, I want us to get there, but the only way we get there is to care, and we have to be seeking God with all of our hearts first and foremost. We have to hunger and thirst for God. So I'm asking for you, for us, to settle it in our hearts today. That we're no longer okay with the ever diminishing status quo of the modern church, and we take it on ourselves to be different to do something different, to live differently than the rest of the world around us is living. We sing a song called The Church, and in that, that song it says, now's the time for us to rise. Hope is, is evaporating in our society. We, as we've talked about, we are anchored to the only true lasting hope. Our world has never needed us more than it needs us right now, and we've got to get out of our self-absorption and into sacrifice so that we can be the church for such a time as this. The days are getting shorter and night is coming when no man can work. Now is the time that we need to get to work. Are we going to keep listening to the siren call of self-absorption and let it lull us into a deeper sense of complacency, or are we going to start rebelling against the rebellion? There's a bunch of rebels in here anyway. Let's rebel against the right thing. We are the rebels, and the church of Christ is our cause. We will not let the enemy who has already been defeated keep having his way with the church. We say today, not on our watch. Not today. Now's the time for us to rise. My wife's favorite quote, probably in all of literature, comes from the Lorax. I don't know if you've watched it, I love that movie. It stirs me every time we get to this closing line. It's something I want to leave us with today. Unless someone like you cares a whole awful lot, nothing is going to get better. It's not. Will you care? Will you care with me?
Let's stand. Thank you, Father, for this church. Thank you for the so many blessings that you have given us through this church, the so many blessings all of us in this room have experienced through this church. If in any way I've made it sound like we're not blessed to be a part of this congregation, Father, I ask that you forgive me and correct that message in the hearts of everyone in the room today. Father, help us to really have open eyes and open hearts to the real blessing that you've given us. May we never underestimate again the blessing of the church of Jesus Christ. But Father, open our eyes to see just how great a price you paid and the price that you're asking of us to pay. Father, I pray, just start moving us towards that. Move us as your church, as your bride, towards a level of devotion that we've never experienced or seen, a story that we've never heard told in modern society, a crazy radical group of people so wholly devoted to one another and brotherly love because of the love that's been poured out into our hearts by the Holy Spirit through the gift of Christ on the cross, that we are so radically devoted to one another and loving one another in that way that the world cannot help but say, what's wrong with those people? Why are they so weird? Why are they so different? Why do they stand out so much from the rest of us when everyone else in society is self-absorbed and getting their own way? There's this weird group of people that is all about loving others. Help us, Father, to be that kind of church. And I pray, Father, that you'd pour out your spirit on us in abundance, that we'd be open to the reception of your spirit in more and more aspects of our lives. And that, Father, through the overflow of your spirit into our hearts, that we would radically love one another. In Jesus' name, amen.